0: There are literally no words for my next guest that would do her justice. Kate Meisner is amazing. An amazing artist, illustrator, poet. Before we break into our conversation, enjoy two poems, one in the introduction and one in the intermission. Kate Meisner.
1: A wolf carries a human baby in its jaws, delivering her into my arms to be mine. The highway is the same stretch of asphalt from a dark window on any map. I can see crests of waves as they rise and break, a rabid dog living in the shallow end of sea. I let balloons go, and a cart of oranges tumbles to clouds. If dreams are a kind of window, I am waiting for the world to come to me slow as a yawn. Hello, you perfect eye, steady frame. Your patience for murder and kindness, expressionless witness. I am looking through you to myself. This platform is my stage. I call doves to shoulders, breasts, Two winking eyes, round pride, the weight of blinking fruit in my hand, breath on the barrier, proof of life, of living so close, but not touching. Let me learn how to look without moving. To be so still, no one notices my face, the way you offer a frame to the sunset, as she insists upon sky, saying, come, belong in this world, we want you here, and says it to everyone, no matter who they are, in a language no one and everyone speaks. I want to be useful, too, how you are a tool to study the shape of loss as it stuffs itself into the tiny bodies of flies disguised as seeds in a gutted papaya, small black planets, black as the eyes of a deer. Teach me to tape eyes wide what I want to curl into myself an insect trapped in amber. This is my test. To pull the curtain closed and see straight through the sky. The window of memory standing up on its hind legs as I lay on my back, invisible. And everything becomes music. Listening to children. And the feet of mice and bullets turn to rain.
0: Okay, we are on, Kate. Thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today.
1: Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for having me.
0: So what's life like for you as we speak right now?
1: Oh, well, I'm sitting on my bed because my husband is out in the living room. We are in our self-quarantine life in New York City, taking a uh, lunch break with you quote unquote, from my job to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Time and space is all blurring together. And uh, I'm going in and out of anxiety and groundedness, (laughs) as I think many (laughs) of us are in this extremely existential time. How about yourself?
0: Oh, my gosh, that that was like said, like a poet. (laughs) I mean, it was like, oh, man. I think, you know, everybody's having a different perspective and many same perspectives different for me because I'm in such a remote place in uh, Washington state, right on the border of Canada. Our life has looked very similar to Mm -hmm. before this time. So, and I've always worked remotely since we moved up here a couple of years ago. So it feels similar, even though I know what's different, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but New York city, I mean, what a, That seems to be ground zero now for for a lot of things.
1: Yeah, not surprisingly. Um, Absolutely. Very strange.
0: What is it like there? Like, tell me, I think that's a lot of people are seeing New York City and they're like, whoa, whoa, there's a lot of cases. What are you seeing? Like the mood, the feeling?
1: Well, you know, I haven't seen many people because we've been self-quarantining. But I will say Mm -hmm. that uh, there's, you know, um, the mayor is on the verge of shutting down the parks because one thing I have noticed today I was able to take a walk. It's overcast. I chose a time when not a lot of people were out. I was able to walk by people with six feet between us. But yesterday I went out at four needing some fresh air and the park was swarming with people. And oh. uh, I was so frustrated because people wouldn't move over on the sidewalk when you walked by them. It, it seemed like any other great on the verge of spring day. And I sort of hustled myself back inside and was like, I'm not dealing with that. So uh, while I'm sure it's very dramatic in Times Square, for example, people who live there and look out their window and it's, you yeah. know, all activity has stopped. I'm in it also in a small neighborhood at the top of Manhattan that's very residential and it doesn't feel tremendously different yet. What feels different I think is the pace of my work um, and I've worked from home at various times in my career as well. So working from home is not unfamiliar, but I think the kind of the entire organization working from home feels like a major shift and and people are in such different headspaces. Um, so, you know, actually moving things forward is is tricky at this time for myself as well. I think the amount of sort of underlying anxiety about what the future brings, especially in our city where they're predicting a depression economically. Uh, although of course we're seeing that have impact uh, many other places is, um, is just kind of psychologically unlike anything we've dealt with before.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think there's, um, I was talking to another person on the podcast and I said, you know, the weird thing is, you know, the majority of people alive have no experience with what we're doing currently. Mm-hmm. So it's all very new to us or even people who are um senior citizens or elderly and they may have lived in um very difficult times they may have been children during that time you know mm. so um i think for us it's just very different times and it's almost kind of like it's an it's almost our country is kind of a collection of countries <laughs> inside of one gigantic mm-hmm. country and it's kind of like New York City is is a gigantic hotspot. When this kind of started going, my state, Washington State, was like, oh, it's the capital of the coronavirus. I'm like, mm, not for long, you know, and just a lot of different places, different feelings, but the same feelings. And I think the con- the commentary about work is very interesting. So I wanted to jump in a little bit about your work and to give the listeners a feel for what you do. and. And how you got into it?
1: Uh, sure. Well, my work is across a couple of different areas. I mean, first and foremost, I'm an artist and writer, poet, illustrator, um, and dabble in other forms as well. But those are my two main expressions at the moment. And uh, my day job, which is also something I'm very passionate about, is Uh, at an organization called PEN America that's at the intersection of human rights, literature, and freedom of expression, and my role particularly as director of the prison and justice writing program. So I work with writers in prison, not um, by teaching classes, which is the background I came out of, actually going inside prisons, Um, but we work through the mail directly with individuals versus with uh, the Department of Corrections. And that way we can be a lot more radical, which is exciting, although the program has been going on for 40 years, so I certainly didn't invent wow. that uh, model. And uh, we also work with writers who are writing about mass incarceration with the goal of really catalyzing public debate and dialogue around um, reform efforts so or abolition efforts, depending on what end of the spectrum you happen to live on. So, uh, so it's been interesting this week because... Uh, we don't have access to our mail, which is where, you know, most people in prison don't have digital access. And those who do, it's on this pay-to-play p- platform, and some prisons are currently on lockdown, so they have very limited access. Uh, so it's been interrupting our, our experience quite a bit, uh, but we are doing some rapid response projects that really do look at the public health crisis that is prison right now um, with the virus, because people really can't self-quarantine and all it means is more drastic and dire measures that distance people even further from society. Um, so I'm trying to channel some of that anxiety into my Mm -hmm. job. Now I'm just rambling. You just asked me what I did.
0: No, it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. Well, I wonder like, why did you, or what drew you to working, um, you know, with prisoners and the writing program. Is that something you just kind of got into or is like you purposely wanted to be in it?
1: Well, it sort of, it did sort of find me. I mean, when I was a kid, actually, my mother uh, used to tell me this story. um, When I started doing this work really uh, more prominently, she said, remember when you were a teenager and you were 14 and you were doing school to prison pipelines when you were a camp counselor at the summer camp? And I had forgotten, but I I was originally turned on politically to this work very very young, through um, a youth group I was in, a Unitarian Universalist youth group, and a video through the Ella Baker Center called uh, "Books Not Bars," which is still available on YouTube mm. and and horrifically still very relevant twenty years later, twenty plus years later, and. Um, and then after that, uh, you know, I, I didn't do work in prisons, although I think when I was about 20, I did do a poetry reading at Rikers Island Jail. Uh, I don't think I know I did. Uh, it was a one-off. But it was so long ago, it's very fuzzy in my memory. Right. And then many years later, it found me again. I had been teaching in New York City public schools as a teaching artist, and I was managing the education department at Tribeca Film Institute, and my supervisor was very interested in prison and jail work from his history working on Rikers Island. And we began some programming there, which uh, I was supervising. And so I would go to the jail. And uh, it's quite a haunting place. So that experience was impactful. And then it just happened that two organizations invited me to teach for them. They knew my work from other areas in in the city, in, in terms of teaching. And they said, we need to facilitator at, you know, at at Rikers Island with the young women, uh, teenagers, and then at Bedford Hills with, which is the, the only maximum security prison, women's prison in New York state. Um, are you available to different organizations the same week? And I happened to be leaving my job to go to grad school and I had the time and space. So I said yes to both. And, um, it changed as it does many people who do this work changed my life and became very central to what I do, and, and eventually, years later, led to the job I have now.
0: What's the biggest changes that you went through from doing this work?
1: Well, I mean, it certainly complicated my understanding and idea of uh, of what a good and bad person is, quote-unquote, mm, <laughs> that's very interesting. Muddy, muddy territory.
0: Real? Wow, really? I would love to yeah. hear more about that.
1: Yeah, well, when you meet people who have done some pretty horrific things, um, because I was often working in maximum security settings, so people who've committed crimes that are very difficult, it's not that it doesn't affect you to hear about it, but um, my capacity for understanding that a person is not an act they've committed, especially if many years have passed, that redemption is possible, that we shouldn't throw away people who cause harm, that harm um, has roots usually in deep uh, trauma for that the individual who committed the crime, that violence is cyclical. I mean, all these ideas started to become very tangible to me. And it's hard to look away. And 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 a story in the paper can still rile me up, of course, right? Just yeah. knowing the facts of something that's really brutal is it's very moving, very horrific. And if you meet somebody who has perpetrated harm in a pretty intense way, but you know them beyond the crime, or you meet them and then you learn about it later, um, it can be very hard to reconcile because how could this person who you love and care about and are experiencing as somebody with tenderness, gifts, love, contribution, intelligence, how could they have done that thing? And that begins to feel really not the way way we're taught to think about it. It begins to feel Mm -hmm. really new, like a discovery. And then what do you do with that? And I'm still not sure what to do with it, except that I I know that punishment only creates more violence. It only further separates people. It doesn't actually help public safety. Uh, It doesn't really take into account the victim. The victim is really cut out of the process. There's no healing mechanism built into our system. All of these things... Um, you know, out, out, even outside of the implications of race and class, which in mass incarceration are enormous. If you're a person of color and poor, you Certainly. know, your, your odds of, of not going to prison are, are much lower than somebody who is white with money. So that's statistically something we understand that there's a, a massive bias in the system and money can buy your way out oftentimes. Um, so aside from all that that sociopolitical uh, stuff that's really intense and, and worth examining and unpacking, on a very human kind of level for me, uh, the transformative nature of it was really grappling with these really difficult sort of juxtapositions of people that I grew to very, really care about and the things they'd done. And in, in that space, I found um, a lot of spiritual resistance that I think hmm. is very growthful and and still is and remains to be.
0: Do you uh, ever get into disagreements with people like vehemently, like Kate's, like, how could you think this way about, you know, people in this situation or things? That? Do you ever get in those kind of spirited debates with people? Or?
1: I have. And I think that um, for the most part, I'm in a bit of an echo chamber is the truth, <laughs> that I I, see. I, do, yeah. I do talk with and work with people who tend to share my beliefs on some level. And I also have a lot of room and capacity, I think, to really understand that perspective. And it's usually spoken by people who don't know much about the justice system. And so when somebody says to me, I could never work with someone who's committed murder, and I might pose a couple of scenarios that complicate what we typically think of as a person mm. who's committed murder and why. And then I ask, or I'll ask, you know, well, what do you what do you think spending 20 years in prison does to somebody who's going to come home to your community? That often causes a a moment of pause, at the very least, to say, "Mm, you know what, I could see myself in that scenario, which is why I think Orange is the New Black, even as sort of sensational and and dramatic as it is, uh, did really... uh, a lot for our field in that it showed backstories of the women that I think most people watching would say, oh, I can kind of see how that would happen. Oh, oh, huh. Yeah. And it's not that it excuses it, but it opens up another lane of thinking to say, well, it's not as cut and dry as that everybody's just a serial killer without a measure of empathy. Just, you know, this is the sort of this is the sort of go-to that people think of when they think of prison. But the fact is most people incarcerated are, are nowhere near that on the spectrum of, of their capacity for change, empathy, growth, their circumstances often, um, you know, really propelled the scenario that occurred. So the more information people have, the more they open up and, um, and I think the, the answer is not, you know, that we let people off the hook. I mean, accountability and responsibility is a, a, it's something that I'm very pro. I just don't think prison is the answer. And I don't think it actually um, does what we like to think it does. What we like to think it does is it keeps the bad people away from us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's just not, it's not, uh, it's not realistic on any level. You know, it's, it's a fantasy that's been created by media and the system to to help us believe that we are being kept safe, quote unquote. So I often find it's able to shift. But I also understand when somebody says, I would never want to meet someone who did that thing you're describing. And and I understand that feeling big time. I feel that way about people I read about in the paper. I feel that way when I sometimes uh, find out the crimes of people that I work with now. Um, I feel very challenged by it still.
0: What do, what was it like the first time you went into a prison or even like, I'm interested, I'm sure a lot of people, you talked about Rikers Island. I think a lot of people have maybe a passing understanding of where it is or what it might be. Like, what was the haunting element of it? Like what, take me, describe that to me.
1: Uh, Sure. Well, Rikers Island, well, the first time I went to a prison, frankly, I don't remember because, well, Rikers is a jail which is where people are held when they're being, um, they're in court when they're being right, tried and sentenced. And sometimes people are sentenced to eight months, which is called the city you there, but, but often people are sent upstate or released. Sometimes people are held for two years before trial, all kinds of violations happen, uh, which is part of this, this sort of mythology of this Rikers monster. And by the way, Rikers will be closing down in 10 years. And, um, moving into community-based jails, which it has a whole other series of implications in this criminal justice reform realm, but we'll just stay with records for now. We won't get yeah. too too down yeah. the rabbit hole. But uh it's an enormous with I I couldn't tell you I'd have to look up the stat, but thousands of people are housed there. Uh you have to take a train to a bus that goes over a bridge to an island that that's next to LaGuardia Airport. It is extremely far to get to. And it looks like the prisons you see in the movies. I mean, it's run down, it's falling apart. You have to, once you get there, take another bus to, uh, to one of the facilities. So, you know, when I would teach, I'd have to give myself like two and a half hours to get there and back. Uh, if there is a lockdown that happens, meaning if there's something that occurs that uh, the, the prison has to stop, you're stuck there. Um, you have to lock up your phone. Obviously, it's a very limited what you can bring inside with you. I mean, this is all typical prisons in general. Yeah. But what makes Rikers so haunting is is the the sheer number of people that are incarcerated there, and the history of abuse. And one of the most famous sort of expose stories that helped Rikers now be on a path to shut down is Khalif Browder and Khalif Browder's story became very, very famous in the media. He was incarcerated when he was 16 for a crime that was never proven. The crime was stealing a backpack with a camera in it. Um, And he waited for two years to go to trial without going to trial at all, at at least two years, if not longer, if I'm not mistaken. And he was uh, beaten, was caught on camera by guards, 16-year-old boy, uh, put in solitary confinement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all these gross abuses that happen all the time there. But here's a 16 year old boy and he eventually was released and uh, ended up committing suicide because he just couldn't live with the trauma that existed. And I used to work with teenagers there and it was, I mean, I don't think any young person belongs in a cage, uh, first of all. And um, it's just, it's just a space that's extremely notorious for abuse
0: What's the solution? Um, if it's not jail, you mentioned, I don't think that's, or prisons are the way, what's the other options in your mind?
1: Well, I don't know that we actually have plans that are a hundred percent yet that I, that I think are a hundred percent yet because I think the dismantling of the system is going to be so tremendous. Mm. But I do think that there are, uh, there are abolitionists working with some really profound ideas and, and, One of them is, uh, would take a whole rerouting of public funding, but one of them is investing in communities, mental health, um, investing in universal health care, investing in systems that keep people from having to commit crime because so many crimes are committed out of a sense of desperation. So that's that's one route, right? Um, Interrupting the root causes of violence. Uh, Two... um, and these are all on different scales. So, from abolitionists to, to reformists, which there's many different camps, to um, a, restorative justice is a really an indigenous frame and model that's being used more and more um, in different spaces and being tested. And restorative justice is a process of essentially truth and reconciliation to sort of borrow South, Af- South Africa's term for their process post-apartheid that brings the harmed harmed, and the harmer into dialogue, facilitated dialogue, and, mm. and looks at accountability in different ways that is not about locking people up away from family resources um, in violent scenarios, et cetera, that just now compound and perpetuate the issue. So an organization, if you're interested, that I think is doing this work in really profound ways is Common Justice in Brooklyn. And they are really working with people who've committed violent offenses. Not many restorative justice organizations have taken that on yet, uh, but they are. And it doesn't mean necessarily that the, inter- the mediation happens between the person who, the victim and the, and the perpetrator. There are other models as well. Uh, it's really based on what the victim wants to see. Um, not that they could just wave a wand and say, I want, you know, retaliation or something like yeah. this, but but this is what my healing looks like. And it looks like also really supportive services for victims, which, you know, our society really doesn't have a good model for that either. Um, and then there's also models that look something like uh, what they do in uh, Germany, in the Netherlands area, where there's a few kind of model prisons where people are still serving sentences, but they're much shorter, much more humane. Uh, and they're in environments that allow a much more dignity, um, much more um, connectivity. So not so hard to see your family, et cetera, and not so isolated, not so exiled from society. And, um, uh, and they, they, it's still a jail and still a prison, but it doesn't look like the, the kind of grotesque human violation, human rights violations that we see um, now in the United States.
0: What's the difference? Like what's the setting look like a little bit more like more nature centered or what I'm trying to envision kind of.
1: I couldn't tell you exactly because I haven't studied them deeply, but I think it's more like instead of a, a slab of metal for a bed and a, and a blanket, you know, and a toilet right next to your head. And that's it that there's like, you know, an actual bed with some blankets on it. Uh, It looks a little bit more like a dorm room than it looks like Mm -hmm. a prison cell. Um, It's the idea that if you treat people humanely, you actually can have the space to grow and change. But that also looks like wraparound services like therapy, like uh, rehabilitative oriented work um, that can happen as well, which the United States, some prisons have, some don't. There's really no regulation. And, and just more access to families. And then the the other ideas, divergent programs, which are instead of jail and prison always being the answer, are there other places that people could, um, could go, could they go, do they need to go to drug treatment? Do they need to go to a community-based program? Do they need to go, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, there's a lot of different ideas out there to be researched. I'm not an, I will say I'm not an expert in it. I'm not a policy person. I'm not uh, a person working uh, grassroots on the ground. I know all of this through my work um, at a very kind of surface level. But if, if you're interested in looking further, those are some places to, and concepts to start with.
0: What was the most surprising aspect of your experience going into jails, prisons and doing poetry?
1: Um, I, I think probably, you know, ultimately just, uh, how meaningful it was for me and, and, and why that is, is because I think probably the most surprising thing was, uh, was finding that the people that I was working with feel very familiar and that uh, so-called criminals are are uh, are not from a different planet. I mean, these things I knew intellectually, obviously, as a politicized person. Yeah. But I think, you know, I think I still had some kind of, uh, you know, layer of of fear based on what I've I've been taught my whole life. And so I think just realizing the depth of people's humanity being so close to my own was. Um, I mean, it was life changing, uh, of course, you know, and just to imagine that our lives were so different when I would leave at the end of the day, I'd get on a train and go home grab a piece of pizza, go home to my partner. And, you know, the women I was working with walked up the hill to lock into cells. I mean, it was v- it just c- cognitive dissonance. You know, I could not, I literally, right. I still cannot ever imagine what it must be like to live in prison. No matter, I've been to 22 jails and prisons across the United States. I can I just cannot.
0: I still elude you, that, that sense. Yes. Right, yeah. I've
1: taught in housing units. I've seen cells open and closed with people in them coming down to sit at the card table where we're doing our writing workshop. But I, I just cannot stretch my empathy. I can stretch, you know, sympathy or a sense of, you know... Uh, of I mean empathy to a certain degree but th- there's a limit where I can actually imagine myself in the shoes of somebody it- it's really beyond my understanding what that must feel like and I think that that's important to understand and know as well so how who... the lights are low the way you like them music lulls us away from speech into the comfort of what it means to know and be known i nearly laughed to think how long ago it seems i was heart sick taking to street psychics who'd shuttle me to basement apartments and brush away the children watching cartoons in order to remove the devil the one keeping me from finding love i would have to pay 300 dollars i'd laugh But I am ashamed to admit that something as silly as the blue light of the television can still throw a spotlight on my loneliness, a landscape I've been trying to find the exit from for years. If this is the place I've been swimming towards, I am disappointed. You point to my chest and say the promised land is here. I think about how houses without the humidity of human breath deteriorate faster, dry out like an old hide, how the same breath can also destroy public landmarks such as the Sistine Chapel and therefore, tourists are limited. I've heard small groups are allowed to see the chapel early mornings if lucky enough to be awake, one could lay on the floor and view the painted ceiling for full hour. Imagine how many cracks could be counted in the tarnished masterpiece. When the song finishes, I'm brushing my teeth when I jump to what I think at first are gunshots and the smell of sulfur carries the air. I open the small slice of bathroom to a sky exploding with color, crushed candy, sea anemone, oil spill, glorious, this moment I could pluck between fingers so ripe the building facing ours, everyone has drawn to windows. A father holds up his daughter to look. All of us are looking, and it is not a full hour, but for three minutes we are counting the cracks in the sky, and it is a group activity. And when I run to the studio to make sure you are watching too, your head is hanging halfway out the window with the camera snapping a quick crack, quick crack, and I know you too, like me, like all of us, are grasping trying to hold on to that final crescendo. Uh,
0: How was it determined who would come and, and listen or contribute to the be a part of the workshop or program was it open to everybody or was what was the criteria
1: i mean it depended on the space so when i worked with the young people it was all the young people who are incarcerated there uh when i worked in uh, jail i worked for example uh, at the transgender housing unit at manhattan detention center which is also affectionately referred to as the tombs i don't uh, even know that existed it does I mean, yeah down by the courthouse Oh, the Transgender Housing Unit?
0: Yeah, I didn't know that existed.
1: doesn't exist everywhere. It's very rare, actually. Wow. So that was an intense uh, space to work in. A lot of very, very, very intense trauma in that room. An intersection of different identities and experiences. And... Um, That was like whoever you know in the housing unit felt like sitting down at the table that day. Unfortunately, my time slot slot was at the same time as Wendy Williams' show, which was very popular. Oh, really? So I couldn't. Nobody. (laughs) I I had my handful of people, but uh, Wendy was tough, tough uh, a tough um, competitor in that space. 10am on a Monday or something like this. And then, uh, you know, in prisons, typically people would opt into the program. So there was some kind of criteria to join, um, like more, less like I have this set of skills, but more like I commit to going. And if I miss two, then I no longer am part of the program or something like this. So, um, and I'm sure there were internal roles in the prison as well in terms of uh, behavior and if yeah. people got written up and all, but th- those things I wasn't as privy to.
0: Gotcha. So did you find that there were just a variety of creative people and artists in oh, your yeah. in the workshops that you were like, were you surprised by that? Or were you like, no, this just in this situation, but there's a lot of creative people regardless, you know?
1: I think I was still surprised by it because of the mythology uh, you know again of, of our society and I find that consistently now and part of my job is that I I oversee a awards program that's solely for incarcerated writers and so we get you know over 1500 submissions a year from across the country and we award cash prizes and publication to the best of and the writing is exceptional and at all of our events I'll have somebody or other come up to me and say, "I cannot believe that was written by somebody in prison. And it's usually a person who's also an artist and it's usually a person who's liberal. and uh, and I just see the the enduring mythology of 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 people who are in prison must be stupid, quote unquote. I mean, not that people say wow. that, but that's sort of what... Yeah, they, but that's they what did. they've
0: been thought, taught, you know, like these people are monsters or something, like they have no intelligent right. or artistic expression or something, you know.
1: Right, right. And so not only are we bringing things that are emotionally stirring, you know, you can get emotionally stirring when, when a piece of writing is very raw as well. But this is also like, uh, you know, writing that is would be great for a, a grad school classroom, you know, I mean, and beyond... Wow. So um, I think people are often pretty blown away, and it does a lot in terms of sort of meltifying what I call the what we call calcified perception of of who's mm. in prison, which helps people also see uh, the humanity that's really been stripped away, and that and that helps people care about the plight of people who are uh, are now uh, made to be very vulnerable and victimized by the system and the state. But this is I, I also talk about prison being this real landmine of. Of personal violence, systemic violence, and and uh, and interpersonal violence—that's really kind of mashed up together. And so it's not always a clean conversation. I think if we're being honest, it has to be a layered conversation always. And I know some reformists are really staunch about it, and I get it because to push the line forward on our on reforms or abolition, you have to—you can't stay in the murky space for too long, but we do have to contend with really difficult things. So my approach is always one that's a little more, uh, I think, honest about the layers we're dealing with in terms of violence.
0: Now for these programs that you're doing and others are, or that are, you know, participating and putting together these vary by jails and prisons. Uh, I would assume. And if that's the case, why do they vary? By the different places?
1: Well, it, all programs um, that I've taught through are all powered by small groups of individuals, uh, you know, who have approached the prisons they work in and said, Can we run programming? And the administration has either said yes or no, and these are our conditions yes or no. Um, there's, no there's no national network of prisons. They're all, even if they're state run, they're very individual. It depends on the administrator, how they're run, what they allow. Um, They're very opaque institutions. So, you know, it's very frustrating to work within the system as well, which is why there's so many human rights violations that occur all the time. There's really no accountability. And so a program like ours runs uh, almost solely through word of mouth, teachers bringing our materials in, somebody's family Googles us online and tells someone by nature of us being printed in kind of prison resources for the last 40 years that makes its way into a prison library in Alaska or whatever, and somebody will write to us asking about it. So that's our program. But the, these in-prison in, in prison classrooms are all independent grassroots, run organizations that are usually volunteer-driven and are usually uh, significantly underfunded.
0: Oh, I see. We had a visitor with my daughter. You may have heard her come in.
1: Oh, I did not.
0: No. Uh, oh, good. Yeah, that doesn't pick. That's good. It didn't pick up that far away. Just like ah, you know, being home with this whole thing,
1: and yes. uh, she's
0: like, I, I'm bored. And I'm like, <laughs> we have school for her, but she's <laughs> on a break, and my wife's doing work. But um, I think this is such an interesting topic. Like, I heard you. I don't even think I heard so much about this as much. But when uh, Janelle had opened up, kind of her list of people that had been on her podcast. And I'm looking through, I'm listening. I'm just going through kind of snippets of people. And I'm, I'm a big feeler. I feel like I feel something and it comes to me. And I'm going through and I got to your episode and it was like, it was a big feeling. It was big.
1: Hmm.
0: And I was like, there's something here with with Kate's. And I definitely know it now. I mean, this is a topic that um, I know no one who discusses this in my life or the layers beyond it. So it's so fascinating that you've been involved with this and your knowledge is incredible because you're taking us behind the curtain of a place that a a lot of people throw the key away for it.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Darian. I I forget sometimes. (laughs) I forget sometimes uh, that it's a new conversation still for people because now mass incarceration is a conversation that has exploded in the American yes. public in a way that seven years ago it was really nowhere to be found even, and so uh, it it's my presumption sometimes, or I get kind of wrapped up in my own small world that I exist in that this is a this is the center of my life. So it, right. it's refreshing and helpful to hear that the work and talking about the work is still necessary. I mean, it's unfortunate it's still necessary, but it, it renews my sense of purpose. So thank you for that. Yes, of
0: course, of course. I mean, it's just, I just think I've seen so many, especially being in podcasting and networking and stuff is there's a lot of conversations about better business practices and marketing ideas and all these things. And, you know, there's, you know, imposter syndrome and all these things that I run across pretty regularly. Um, that's almost saturated the market. And then here you come with this and I'm like, okay, who's talking about this? No one I know of, or Mm. in all these people I've met thousands of people throughout the years and network and talk to there. I have never heard of this in this sense. So it is refreshing. It is mind blowing. Um, You know, as I'm listening to you speak here and I want to know more, you know, I just, I'm also interested in how you came about, like what your process is for writing and being creative. I would love to know that.
1: Personally, outside of prisons.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I would love to. I just, I love the way people think. And like, I I just had, I just had this uh, blues rock and roll artist on yesterday and, you know, she was singing. I said, man, I'd love to know about how music is created. Like, what? how did that sound come about? How did that lyric come about? And I think mm. it's the same thing with writers and different artists. Like, how did you get that? What's your process, you know?
1: Sure. Well, you know, I've always really done art, writing and drawing, since I was a toddler. And... Um, I was very lucky in that I had parents who had language for it. My parents are not artists, um, but my, my mother's mother uh, drew fashion sketches and sang and, and would have been an artist had the era kind of allowed her to be. And my father's father was a painter, and interior designer, and his sister was a painter. So they were able to say what you're making is art, and, and they fostered it and, and really celebrated it, which many, many parents don't. So, right. uh, since I was young, my identity, when I was five, I said what I wanted to be when I grew up was an artist and lo and behold, you know, that, uh, muscle just kept getting developed over the years through art classes. And in high school, I made a zine, which is a, like a photocopied magazine that I did all the writing and art in actually just put out, I'm I'm in my mid thirties and I just put out a zine that's a much more highly produced. It's not photocopied, but uh, it's 80 pages and it's, it's poetry comics. And I, I just put that out in February and it's self-produced really because I wanted to return to the creative practice of, of, of when I was young, which was um, really dropping some of the ambitious drive that seems to feed us once we develop some kind of career in the arts and really just get back to the essence of making for the sake of making. um, So, you know, that's my my history and trajectory is that I have just always created and, and was lucky to have people around me supporting that.
0: So how do you start off with the creation? Like what's the, how do you come to your ideas and how do you move through those ideas?
1: That's a great question. And I think it's all different kinds of ways. And especially because I have this demanding, job that I really care about. And, and frankly, get a lot of creative needs met through in, you know, the event production we do, or I just, we just signed a contract, I'm editing a, a, a book project for work. Um, so a lot of that gets uh, satiated there. But in terms of, of create creating like a poem, for example, that just comes with either having an idea and getting some thoughts down and starting. Or um, another way that I really like to work, and I think this works for a lot of people, is by putting in some creative restraints. So I have a women's writing group that once a year during National Poetry Month, like many people do, we write 30 poems in 30 days. We email them daily to each other. I actually just stepped out of doing it this year because I, I have too much going on uh, to, to do it again. Um, but I intend to come back and we just did five poems in five days last week, but that's a real generative process. And because of the accountability of the eight other women, you don't want to be the one screwing up. So even if, you know, 20 of the poems are terrible, you might get 10 that are worth going back to and editing, or you might get a line in one poem that you can pull out. And uh, and I think that that kind of hypergenerative process can be really helpful in terms of starting to build a body of work that then you take a lot of time to go back and edit and tinker and and work on the craft of it, which for me is a more exciting. I often find the generation process to be a little stressful, (laughs) you know, I like I like when something's down and then I can work on it. Um, and I started coming back to illustration a few years ago at the urging of a friend, and I took a class and I have an undergrad degree in graphic design, but really thought I had to choose. I really thought I had to be a writer, and that was that was what I was. And a friend of mine was like, "What are you talking about? You can have multiple skills and, and interests. So I really came back to drawing during a moment of uh, of acute depression, and I couldn't really focus, but I could draw. And I got lost in it, and that's what the zine actually was born out of. And um, and I started writing. It's called Pep Talks for Broken People. I started writing these kind of tender, sweet exchanges, uh, and and um, and illustrating them. And that's how I got really my illustration muscle going again. And now I have a um, uh, I have a series once a month about New York City interactions in New York City. I have a pandemic version uh you know installation of it coming out next this coming weekend and um and I'm and I'm working on ideating a larger kind of graphic novel project now so I think you know I'm sharing all this and I want to have a takeaway from it because I think that the way artists create is so different and some people will say you know I need my routine every morning for an hour that is not me I don't work well under a structure like that. I resist it in the way that I resist authority. I like I, you know, I I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to be boxed in. But I think that um, I, fe- I felt for years a pressure and I still feel it, you know, if I'm honest about having a kind of marketable product and something that this moment is really interesting. I think this pandemic moment is who knows what publishing looks on the other side of it. We have to find uh, our essence of why we create again, which, of course, paradoxically is always Mm -hmm. what makes good work, no matter where it ends up. You can't create towards uh, an audience, or you can, but it might be stale or not as pure. So all of these projects that I'm working on um, came out of, first and foremost, a personal need. And then ended up kind of getting directed into a shape and form. And the zine, for example, I had an opportunity to put it out as a book on a small press. And I just, I just didn't want to. I, it's not, it wasn't a polished product. That wasn't the intention of it. It was just a stepping stone. And it was one I wanted to celebrate with other people, but not one that I wanted to dump a lot of time and resources into in terms of making it this marketable thing. And I'm, yeah. I'm proud of that fact. And I, and I love that. And it helped open space for me to think about, okay, what, what, would a book project using this form look like? And what do I have to say? And what do I want to say? And, um, and I lost my mother in August and, uh, I know that it's something about grief now, but it took me seven months to get there and this project to get there and, and all of that first.
0: Do You ever hear like, I always think of music and stuff and people say, you know, a lot of great music comes from pain and from anguish. And do you believe that to be true on some level? Or do you think that it's just just depends on where you're at in your life and you can make great work when you're happy or in different situations? What do you think about that?
1: I think totally you can make work in different situations. I do think that there's a romanticism of the kind of heartache and drive and pain. And I think mm-hmm. there is, um, a muse quality to that, though. I do think that that is often can also be a really kind of, uh, stagnating force as well, because I'm most productive when I am feeling good, but what those dark days teach you, or I think build the muscle in you as a human is the capacity to write about the human experience without feeling deeply, what do you have to translate? But I don't necessarily think that feeling deeply or being in a a moment of depression or, or, you know, wrestling with your demons produces good work in that moment. I think uh, we have different seasons. So that experience might get translated down the line. But you know kind of raw open vein to page for me is not is is yeah. not how it works if I'm in a mode of depression i'm I find it very hard to motivate focus et cetera um I often need to do other things to kind of get myself on track to open up that space um, but I do think that that our darkness does provide fodder for creation when we're ready to use it.
0: What do you think is um As I'm thinking about this, how do you, what's the hardest part about staying creative over the course of many years, you know, to continue to produce things that you feel good about?
1: What is the hardest part of that? Yeah.
0: Maybe I always think about when sometimes you start something, whatever career or thing, passion you're into, and you're so excited about it and you're very gung-ho about it, but how do you stay creative over 10, 20 years, Mm. you know, at least and feel like it's still, you're still able to produce at a level that is really quality in your mind while your life is changing? Yeah.
1: That's a great question. I mean, I I think it is really hard. I don't know what the hardest part is, but I I think actually what you might be asking is, you know, how, how do you manage that or how do you stay connected to that? And I think well, first of all, I don't think you always are going to be producing at 100%. You know, that's that's a, a fallacy, mm-hmm. I think, very connected to capitalism, honestly, about this sort of production productivity. Very interesting. And productivity, I agree with that. Right? Yeah. You, you're going to have downtime where you produce things that are not great, and that you experiment in and play with, and, and you might still choose to share it, even if it's not perfect. In fact, I think, you know, that's that's actually a good thing. You know, when you, sometimes an artist becomes known and then you look back at the earlier work and you're like, huh, Oh, interesting. That's where they started. Uh, but you would, wouldn't would have known that, you know, you wouldn't have because you entered their career later. I, I think that really it's a, a journey of, of um, curiosity and conversation with yourself in the world that keeps you engaged. I think more than uh, maybe uh good quote unquote or always producing at a powerful level and i and i think that kind of pressure to do so can really also stop me i know in my tracks so i have to lighten up a little bit and and allow my work to evolve and not be perfect and uh and there's seasons where i don't make anything and then it will look like i'm making a ton all the time because maybe uh, now, for the past five years, I have a bank of work I've created, and I'm just starting to put it in the world. So it looks like it's this proliferation. Yeah. But for a few years, I was much quieter. You know, I realized last year, I did not one performance for my own work. This year, I've had a uh, many on the calendar, some of which have obviously been canceled. And so I think that there are seasons we need to allow ourselves just the way that, you know, creatively, just the way nature's creation process is is in seasons. Um and the ebb and flow and breaks and having a lot of ideas and, uh, you know, thinking how many seeds it takes for, you know, one tree to take root and all of these concepts that we know are natural, but somehow we don't apply directly to our our own creative processes as if we're separate from the natural creative process. Um, we're not. So I think, you know, all, all of that, and I think being surrounded by people in community, uh, remaining inspired and engaging with, uh, other work in your creative field that is meaningful and exciting. And I think the accountability of other creative people as well, uh, not just in terms of being inspired and in creating, but also in getting feedback, uh, really learning how your work is landing and getting input and, uh, creative process can be, if you're not in a collaborative project, be very solitary. So how do you create connection at different points in the process to, to not be creating in a vacuum. Uh, those are some ways I think.
0: Amazing. Honestly, you know, you have a way with words, so um, clearly, obviously <laughs> with your words.
1: I feel really inarticulate today. So that's helpful. No, Thank you. <laughs>
0: no, you, it's like your speaking is very, is very eloquent and how you explain things and your intelligence and how the words are put together. It's, yeah, as I'm listening, it it feels like you're speaking in poetry and you're explaining in ways that are are very beautiful and um, but very transparent at the same time. Oh, thank um, you. It's amazing. It's I'm I'm really uh I'm blown away by this conversation. It's not often I have conversations that are very new to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and this feels very fresh, very new, very creative, and. Understanding your process and and the process of other creatives potentially. Um, is, is very refreshing. It really is.
1: All right. Well, that's a win for the day in the middle of the pandemic, isn't it? <laughs> gotta
0: have some wins, right? You can't Ooh, just be do. like
1: we should sure do. <laughs> it's uh,
0: this it's okay to have good times and and have all these and have wins and there's gonna be probably amazing uh artistry that comes from this time like mind-blowing work because people are going to be connected to something different during this time i think
1: yeah i think so too and i think it might take us a little while to get there i know a lot of people are feeling such anxiety that they can't you know there's there is actually a, a kind of dialogue going around like oh my personal creative residency that a lot of people are pushing back against because again when I said that hook of capitalism saying we must be productive at all times uh, you know, that instinct to be like, Oh, I can use this time to get things done is very present for me. And I know for other people, but also Mm -hmm. could be very damaging. I know that I'm quite exhausted from the kind of underlying sense of anxiety of this moment, uh, you know, being kind of perpetual. And um, I'm trying to, Channel my anxiety into productive modes, but also give myself a bit of a break as well. So uh, I think that some people are really going to run with this and make amazing art in the moment, and some people are going to have that process, like like we were talking about earlier, with having to digest the experience first, and then down the line, it's going to come out into something uh, profound.
0: Yeah, I think profound is the right word. There will be some some amazing things that are going to be produced from this, and I always think. I can't imagine what that's gonna be. I never know, you never just-
1: We never know. There'll
0: be a miracle from this. There'll be something incredible. And a lot of times the miracle's inside us. You know, it's waiting to come out and be shared and whatever transformation that is for each person. You know, and I've certainly felt that transformation in this conversation and am grateful for you providing some of your time Uh, with me and my audience. Really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thanks for having me and being in dialogue with me.
0: Yes, of course. Well, listen, you have a good rest of your day and we will certainly be in touch.
1: Sounds fantastic, Darian. Thanks for bringing some light to my day as well.
0: You got it. Thanks.